Good to see you. And it's good to be seen. We are coming back into our class on 1 Samuel. I say that uh, class or study on 1 Samuel, it's, it's really kind of discussion that over stuff that happens in 1 Samuel. But I like that. It's good. I'm not too worried about getting through uh, all the material, except there's just so much good stuff in here. I hate to miss any of it, so uh, we'll get back into it this morning. If you're looking at the readings and saying, why are we starting in Exodus? There's a good reason, and as soon as we, we, uh, we get there, you'll, you'll understand it if you don't already. If you're not familiar with this text, it, has, uh, it bears heavily on what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 15, which is where we've been. And we haven't checked it out yet, so let's check that out this morning as we get started. Hey, Belinda, good to see y'all. Um, welcome to everybody who's here and anybody who's watching online. We're glad you're with us also. And we are studying First Samuel. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. Who wants to read out of Exodus this morning? Uh, we'll, we'll do that first. We'll just read that and, and talk about how that bears on the context of chapter 15. All right, Larry. Exodus chapter 17, 8 to 16, and then we'll come down and make assignments in 1 Samuel and read those. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Ripidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Paul went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hul supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Right. How many of you remember this account? This is it's pretty memorable, the way this is written in the text and, and the way it, it happens. So, we're reading about this because it was the Amalekites that God told Saul to go and destroy. And how did he tell him to destroy them? How did he have Samuel tell him to destroy them? Utterly, utterly. Every man, woman, and child, every animal, every speck of dust, so to speak, you wipe them out. And this is why God did not have a vendetta against the Amalekites for no reason. But this goes all the way back to Exodus 17. 
So Amalek comes out and they fight against Israel. The Israelites are they're coming out of Egypt. They've finally been set free from slavery. And now they're out there trying to get to the promised land. And they have opposition. And it's the Amalekites. And they have a great victory against them in an interesting way. Moses had to hold his hands up. What did he have in his hands? He had the staff. He had the staff that he had used to part the Nile River. God said, strike the Nile with that staff. And he had the staff that he, uh, did I say Nile River? I did say Nile River, didn't I? Well, that's, that's also what he used, I'm sure, to uh, turn the Nile River to blood. There's your research question. How did Noah go about turning the Nile River to blood? Was it the staff that he used? I have that in mind, but I'm not sure that's an exact memory. But he did use it to part the Red Sea. And he used it also to do what else? He got water from the rock the first time. That's how he was supposed to do it the first time. Strike the rock. Second time he was supposed to speak to the rock, and he didn't. He struck it again. That's what got him in trouble. That's why he didn't go into the promised land. But here, he's got that staff, and he's, he's holding his arms up. And as long as he holds his arms up, the Israelites are successful in warring against the Amalekites. And so it says they took a rock and set it under him so he could sit down. And they stood by him and held his hands up. Aaron and her supported his hands. And so you get down to verse 14 of chapter 17 in Exodus, and it says this. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a book. In other words, this is a record that's supposed to last. This is a memorial record. And recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And if it weren't for reading about Amalek in the Bible, we wouldn't have any memory of Amalek. We would never know that they existed because God did eventually blot them out. And this was Saul's job. It came down to him. You go to the Amalekites and you blot them out. Did Saul know about this? Did he know about Exodus 17? Did he know about that memory? I don't know. As far as I can determine from the text of 1 Samuel, there's, there's no indication whether or not he knew about this. Does that matter? What did God tell him to do? You go blot them out, you go wipe them out. And why did he not do that? Who did he listen to besides God? He listened to the people. He listened to the people. That got him in trouble. It'll get you and me in trouble every time. And sometimes the temptation is even to listen to the imagined voice of the people. Nobody will tell you directly, this is what you need to do to be popular. This is what you need to do to be right with, with society. This is what you need to do to be right with the world as it is. Maybe nobody will tell you that directly, but you have that feeling because of things you read and hear. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do that because I want to fit in. And you might wind up losing the kingdom. But, Billy? To me, that he paired the people when yet he's got an awesome God who's winning battles for him, leading through the wilderness, doing everything for him, but yet you fear the people and not the God. And uh, Samuel had elected Saul to be the king, and you're going to oh, disobey God? Right. And, and that's, that's, that's part of our condition, I think, as human beings in the flesh. We have these five senses that God has given us. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch. And these are the things from which we, we get input in this world. 
And we tend to listen to the input from this world more than we listen to the input from that world. God is on high. If he and his angels were down here invisible to us, we might think differently because, well, that would indicate our weakness also. Because we're willing to be influenced by, by what we see. But later Paul would write that we walk by faith and not by sight. It's not what we see that makes a difference. The most important things in the universe and beyond the universe are what we do not see, what we cannot see. It's the things that we, we have a window to by virtue of the word of God. But, but that's basically it. Preston? I'm trying to remember the passage in the Old Testament about where uh, God let the prophets see around about him all the people that he had, like <coughs> chariots and all of that stuff. And I just think about he could see. Right. And, and it, how, how much deeper is our faith if we walk by faith than by sight? If we see it, we recognize it, we react off of it. Right. How deep are the roots? And if we, you know, you see what I'm saying? Sure. We surprised here. That happened in Alabama. Uh, it was, well, it was Dothan. It was the name of the town. There was Dothan in Alabama. I'm sure that's the place. But it was Elisha. And, and he was up there and he woke up. And it was surrounded by Aaron. Uh, and uh, Elisha's servant was scared to death when he saw that. And Elisha opened his eyes to order to go. And he did. He saw that they were surrounded by God's chariots and warriors. So, yeah, that's. That's a, a brief window into what the possibilities are. And then when you read the 34th Psalm, the angel of the Lord that camps around those who belong to him and protects them, the angel of the Lord does that. And then you read Hebrews, it says, Who are angels for ministering spirits sent to minister to those, for those who are heirs of the kingdom of God? There is a world that we do not see that is watching over us, protecting us, and caring for us all the time. Remember what Jesus said about the little children? And I don't think we're just talking about little children. He said, there are angels who always do what? There are angels who always behold the face of my Father who's in heaven. You've got an angel, I believe. I've got an angel. I'm going to warn some out. Who stands before the face of God, and, and he is watching after me and watching after you. Can you imagine, we haven't had kids for years, and we've got three grandkids this morning, we're trying to get ready for church and we're completely wore out. I can just only imagine what my angels going through right there. Yeah, exactly. You got How many have we wore out? Randy. <laughs> Randy, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> So, this is where we are in 1 Samuel. We've got Saul, who is losing the kingdom. But what else is he losing? What else does it look like he's losing? What else does it appear that he's in danger of losing? That's even more important than the kingdom. His soul. His soul. That's never directly addressed in the letter but to lose the kingdom of Israel is one thing 
To lose your relationship with God Almighty is totally another. And that's what's going on here. That's what's really happening behind the scenes, so to speak. And that is the reason for the rest of it. If Saul had been strengthening his relationship with God, he never would have said, I'm going to listen to the people instead. He would have listened to God. He would have followed the words of God's prophet Samuel. And it's the same for us today. We have so much in our hands, so much in our, in our grasp, so to speak, that is priceless, absolutely priceless, that can't be bought with money. It can only be bought with the blood of Christ. And that's what we have in our possession right now. And we don't ever want to do anything that would endanger our uh, keeping that, keeping our, our status, so to speak, with God as a son or as a daughter. Do not want to quench the spirit. Do not want to grieve the spirit. We've been sealed with that spirit. And we're seeing in Saul a set of values that is pulling him away from God. So you remember what happened to Saul in that passage where it talks about quenching the spirit. Well, well when, when you get a word from God, a clear word, go, go destroy the Amalekites. And then you say, oh, the people don't want to do that. So will I, will I destroy them? As God? Well, the people's desires are quenching, in my mind, what God has told me to do. So I'm not going to do that, Saul said. I'm going to allow the people's will to rule. That's, it's just weak. <laughs> but, but we express the same weakness sometimes when we give in to, to popular opinion. Bruce? When you look around today, that's what's got the religious world in such a mess. Listening to men. Listening exactly. to the people instead of what God's word says. So that ought to be a lesson to us. Maybe you all like I have. The station where the guys are preaching and and there's a lot of those sermons that are fantastic. Um, so I'll, I'll listen to them and I don't know how many times I've just been blown away, so to speak, because they they preach everything perfect until they get right down to the plan of salvation. And and it's just, it's, it's clear. I mean, there's nothing made more clear in the New Testament. And then they, one guy, I, I'm sure I've told you this story. I was listening to a, a great sermon on evangelism. I was, I was inspired by his sermon until he got down to the end. And he quoted Mark 16, 16. Well, he didn't really. What does Mark 16, 16 say? It says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Very simple passage. He quoted it the first time and he said, he that believeth shall be saved. And I said, well, he, he just missed it. He's just preaching and he forgot. But then he did the same thing two more times. It's as if God was saying to me, Marty, no, listen to this guy. He won't say what I told him to say. That's it. Why and, and now, however, I th maybe it's been long enough. I'm starting to hear some denominational preachers question their position on the simple teaching of baptism. They're saying, you know, guys, that's what it says. <laughs> One guy says it's, it's pretty clear. One guy was preaching, and, and he, told us, he said, my five-year-old daughter read that, heard that, and said, Daddy, doesn't that mean we need to be baptized? 
You know, when a child can read it and tell you something, you need to, you need to pay attention. Paul? When I, when I see that, to me, it really highlights how insidious Satan really is. In that, what is a better way to fool more people than to use good people, people that love Jesus or even trying to please the Lord, and to just get them to miss the mark just a little bit? Not, not, not by a lot, just one little thing. You're either on target or you're off. And you have a very basic criteria to access the inheritance. So he just needs you to miss by just a little bit. And what, a, what better way to disseminate that deception than to use good people who love Jesus. That's the sad part about right. that whole thing. That's so much more compelling than, you know, you're not going to get pulled away by somebody who's evil. That's not going to, you know... So, to here's another way to ask this out. It's, okay, these people that believe in it, they're going to they're gonna come and press so hard and put everything all their way on that because they're trying to get people one over that one idea that they missed that they're going to look like Pharisees and lawyers. And some of them will become Pharisees and hypocrites and lawyers and, and focus on the works. But, but that's not what it's about. It's simply, could you imagine Saul? When Samuel approaches him and he says, what is this bleeding of the sheep I hear? What if Saul would have said, what are you, some kind of legalist? You expect me to do exactly like God said? If he'd asked that question, what would Samuel have said? Yes. (laughs) Who's God? Who's the Lord? Who's the king of kings? Who's not? You're not. You're the king of Israel, and you're only the king of Israel because God has made you the king of Israel. He sent me to anoint you. Have you forgotten that, Saul? And sometimes I think that's a question I need to hear. Marty, have you forgotten who has saved you from your sin? Who has brought you into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness? So what are you behaving like this for? What are you talking like this for? What are you thinking like that for? Bruce? And we let that happen. You know, I, I had discussed it. A guy worked for me years ago when I was in Southeast Oklahoma, and he went to a denomination, and on the job we got to talking about salvation and stuff, and his only comment was, well, that's what we've got the preacher for to tell us what the Bible says. And he took that, whatever this preacher he went to said, that's what the Word said. And they were just, just like you're saying, just so far off base, just he who believes. Forget the baptism part. But that's the gospel according to him because that's what that preacher said. Right. I mean, we're under obligation, even what you preach or Mike or Paul or anybody, John, we're under obligation to check that out. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't take anybody's word for what your soul's too important. And I don't want you to. No, my soul's too important. If I get up there and say something that shouldn't be said or if I'm out of line, I want one of you guys to come to or one of you ladies come to me and say, hey, Marty, you know, I was thinking about something you said. I want to talk to you about that. Oh, wait a minute. You, you may be right. I need to, to clarify that. Um, before uh, Preston, there's a, if you read the letter to the church at Thessalonica, you'll find out that's a, that's a good bunch of Christians, good people. But... It was written in the book of Acts that there was a group of people more noble than the, than the Thessalonians. Who was more noble than the Thessalonians? The Bereans. Why were they more noble? They searched the scriptures daily 
to see whether or not these things were so. That's what they did. They did not just take it for granted, but they searched. By the way, what scriptures did they have at that point? They just had the Old Covenant. The old te- they had the prophets. They had the law. They had the Psalms, all the poetry. They didn't have a New Testament at that point. But they searched those scriptures to make sure those things were so. Preston and then Bud. Something about what he said, the milk of the word, and that we're so easily led, and if we don't grow, then we, we can be misled. So, and, and I, it was just a comment along those same lines. And that's why it's so important for us to study so that we can grow and not be misled. Right. Uh, Hebrew writer said, writing to those people, he said, by this time, you want me teachers, but you need to be fed with the milk of the word. So there's a there's an indirect <laughs> teaching to us. You, you need to grow up to the point where you can be a teacher for somebody else. That's what we need to be working for. But uh, <clears throat> when I was in preaching school, we had a story told to us by a man who had been in uh, India, I think it was. But they they had hired an an interpreter. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but. He was not a member of the church. He was, he was just an interpreter. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the preacher got up and got to uh, preaching. And he was not a member of the church. The preacher was. And so uh, when they get to the point where they were in, in, in Acts 2, I think it was, where they were, they said, repent and be baptized. And so this man got up and was coming forward. The interpreter said, and the pe- people said, well, what's he coming up here for? And the interpreter said, he's coming up here to be baptized. They said, oh, no, you misunderstood that. The interpreter said, I didn't misunderstand. I just read it like it was, you know. <laughs> so <clears throat> even people who are not members of the church are not looking for the truth will find the truth. Right. You know. It's, it's there. Because it's, it's there. All right, let's go to 1 Samuel, then do a little reading in 1 Samuel. This actually is, oh, Don, sorry, brother. Listen, I hate to keep, you know, beat the dead horse. It's all right. I'd like to play the devil, devil's advocate just a little bit. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with uh, baptism for the remission of sins, that we should get there. Now, are we saying that all denominations are going to hell? I am not saying that. That's in the hands of God. So then the only way that we can believe that they wouldn't go to hell is because they don't completely denounce baptism. They may do it for the wrong reason. They may say because we believe in total depravity, total depravity, we don't do it for the remission of sins. We do it because Jesus commanded it. And we were saved when we believed. That's what they do. Okay, And that's why they say it. But they don't completely deny. Now I have known people to say, <clears throat> no, the Holy Spirit fell on me. I was saved and I don't need to be baptized. I'm concerned. You know, you, you completely denounce that. You, know, you believe the one baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now I say that. That's, that's what we have to believe. If we believe in that, that's what we have to say. Well, they're not denouncing it. They do obey the gospel. Albeit they do create a division because they say it differently than we say it. Now that said... We kind of boosted ourselves here. We believe in baptism for the Holy Spirit. We believe in baptism for remission of sins. So we're doing good. And we just all did this just now. Now we've got other people within five miles of our congregation, churches of Christ, that believe in baptism for the remission of sins. 
but they won't even fellowship with us because they don't they have different beliefs on how we handle things. And you got the non-institutional on post, you got the one on Sooner that yeah. has different beliefs. Uh, now, Barnes won't go that far, but they don't believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They believe it by virtue of the Word, so we have divisions. Um, one will say, we don't know if you're really the true church or not because you don't do it this way. And so, that said, we have divisions in us too, so I, I just don't want us to get too high and mighty. Thinking, well, we got baptism, right? So we're going to make it, and they're all not going to make it. We, and we count our salvation on that rather than Christ crucified. Right. Be merciful to me because I might be wrong about something. That's, that's, that's what I was talking, talking about becoming legalists and Pharisees because that's, you know, when Paul was talking about the, uh, the insidiousness of the idea that you can get, get people to believe everything but the very thing that puts them in Christ, and that's what the scriptures teach that baptism puts us in Christ. Well, the. The result of that is not just that they fail to come into Christ in the, in the way the scriptures teach. That means we try to counter that by overemphasizing. We, we preach baptism. We're talking about baptism now. Why are we talking about baptism now? But because so much of the denominational world says, no, we're not going to believe it like the Bible says. And so we, we come back and try to counter that. And sometimes I feel like a Pharisee. But all I'm doing is pointing people, this, this is what it says. I, I'm pretty sure we've got this right, and I don't say that in an arrogant, prideful kind of way, even if it sounds like that. But the, the fact of the matter is, when Samuel came to Saul and said, you were told to destroy them all, he's not being arrogant or self-righteous or uh, pharisaic or legalistic. He said, this is, this is what it says. Now, What's going to happen with everybody who doesn't believe things like me? Well, I, I don't know. I don't even know what God's going to do with me. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he's writing through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I don't even judge myself. So I can't judge myself. I can't judge anybody else. That's not my job. My job is to preach the word and I can see what the word says. And that's what I'm responsible to put out there for everybody. This is, this is what it says. What God's going to do beyond that. He's God. I'm not. I'm, I'm just his servant. I think when, when Samuel made the pronouncement to Saul, God has torn the kingdom away from you. I don't think that was anything that Samuel came up with. Now, that's speculation on my part, but I think he knew from God that that's what was happening because God had already told him, I'm, I'm going to look for a guy with a heart like mine who's after my own heart. And so he was looking for David. So all of this is to say, We've got to go to the word. We've got to follow what it says. How closely, that's up to God. But I, I like the illustration of, of a minefield and a guy with a mine sweeper. You know how that works? Mines, the theory is they're made out of metal, and so they're metal things in the ground that will blow up if you step on them. And so you get a guy with a metal detector, and he goes through, and, and he sweeps he wrote, he waves that thing over the ground. Okay, there's a mine there, there's a mine there. There's a, and so he creates a path through the minefield that's safe. Now you can get off the minefield or off the path and you might walk a mile in a minefield and never step on a mine. But you don't know that you can do that. Whereas if, if you stay on the path, and Jesus talked about two paths. He said there's a straight way and there's a narrow way. There's a, there's a straight and narrow way. And there's a broad way. 
you, you stay on the narrow way. And that's what we're trying to direct people to. Sometimes it'll make us sound like legalists and Pharisees. That might have been what Samuel sounded like to the people there. Wow, look at all these great sheep. You, you telling me, you telling me that God wants us to waste good sheep. You telling me that he doesn't want us to show mercy to this king. We've already defeated his army. and You, you, you tell me that God doesn't want me to show mercy? No, I'm not telling you that. God's told you that. If God's told you that, then don't you think you're going to be more merciful than God or more of a steward with sheep than God is? Do what God says, even if it doesn't make sense. You, you remember that story about the guy that falls off the cliff and he's hanging by a little root that's come out and he says, help, help, anybody up there that can help me? And an angel appears floating next to him and says, I'm an angel of the Lord. I've been sent to give you a message. Just let go. And he thinks about it and he says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't make sense to me in, in my, my human physical world, the values that I've got that are conflicting with what my value of God. And, and we do that. We do that. And we don't want to. But sometimes that's what happens. And it's, it's easy. You know, there's, we use these terms, liberal and conservative. How are you going to live your life so that you're perfectly in the middle between liberalism and, and over-conservatism? Or not for God. There's not any in between. And the nature of the beast is, if I can say it this way, sometimes we have to draw lines. But maybe I'm missing your point. I'm sorry. Miss my point? How did you miss my point? I'm not so clear. I mean, we, we have to draw lines sometimes. It just looks like a fellowship issue. We're not going to fellowship you because you do this or you don't do that well okay we have to do that too if somebody comes from a denominational group and they don't believe that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins and they've never been baptized into christ and they say i want to place membership with you and and after a while i want to i want to help do some preaching and teaching then we have to make a decision all right Here's somebody who openly professes that they don't believe that the scriptures teach what we think it teaches about baptism. Now, there are other issues, but, but this one thing is what either puts us into Christ or it doesn't. There are a lot of other things we might disagree on. Who has, this, who has the same view of scripture in here as on marriage and divorce as Jesus does? Everybody see that exactly the same way? Do you even know how he see it? See, I, I thought at one point, I went through school, we studied that. Okay, I've got it down now. And then other questions started coming up. And I, I don't have answers for all the questions. So I'm thinking, okay, where's, where's mercy? Where's grace? I want to be as conservative with the scriptures as they demand I be. 
I want to be as liberal with the scriptures as they will allow me to be. I don't want to go any farther either way. And the bottom line is I have to trust God with my own conclusions because it's faith in him. That's, that's what saves us all. If anybody's going to be saved, it's going to be through faith in him. But saying that, there are things he says, you got to do this. There was a hand in the back. Was that Bob? You know, studying Saul right now, we're going to study David soon. It's a heart thing. We are not going to get it right. There's no way in the world we can get it right. We've gone through, we're studying all the, you know, children of Israel right now. who never got it right. Jesus came along and finally got it right, and he's the only one that's going to do it. It's got to be our hearts. What are we trying to do? And God can see that. What is that passage in Hebrews? God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think it's chapter 11, verse 6. That's who he rewards, those who diligently seek him. I'm convinced that if we diligently seek God, he will show us anything we need to make a change in. If we're pursuing him, he will pursue us. If we draw near to God, James says, he will draw near to us. And and that's... That's what we have to trust in. Jamie and then Billy. So I have to disagree a little bit that we never get it right because we do diligently seek. Yes. We, we are to be bold in our faith. We are to know we are saved. We are to know we're going to heaven. And if you are close, you know and you're doing the right. You have it right. You may not have all the fine points right, but your heart's in the right place. You are a person after God's own heart. You know you are safe. So to constantly say we are never enough, we're never doing good enough, we're never making it, causes us to mourn our faith instead of celebrating our faith, the fact that we have that gift of salvation and that we have that gift of eternal life through Jesus. And and it's a road, it's a path, it's a narrow path, but you're, you're trying to walk that path without stepping in all the potholes and doing your best. So that is a mindset that I've seen in the Church of Christ that we're all so sorrowful that we don't know if we're going to heaven. Well, by golly, he tells us. Be bold. No. No, he's going to heaven. I I want to apologize if you even considered the fact that I wouldn't say we weren't going to heaven. Well, no. I'm I'm just saying people are, a lot of people are legalistic. Mm -hmm. And they're they're wanting a checklist and to know, yes, I've done everything (coughs) right. Forget it. You're not going to do everything right. There's no way you can do everything right. All you can do is do your best and trust in God. And God can see that you're doing your best and you're trusting in God. And he's going to credit, like he did for Abraham, credit you that as righteousness. But my, my point is that, and when you're doing your best, you're going to be thankful and happy. You're not going to be mournful all the time that, oh, woe is me. Every time I sin, I just I just constantly fail and fail and fail. You'll eventually get to that point where, you know, the joy of the Spirit is within you in the show. Yes, and I was, I was trying to say, don't worry about that because, yeah, you're right. You're not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. And so I need to understand that and realize that it's not what I do, it's what my heart is trying to do. And, and, and Paul's brought that up so many times. You know. Billy, you got a comment. 
In 1 John 2, over there, we talked about the advocate, the blood of Christ continually to cleanse us from our sins. God judges, we examine ourselves through faith and hope and everything else. We trust on that blood to cleanse us when we sin. So, therefore, we can walk in the light, and we're trying to walk in the light. We may not ever get it perfect, we may be on the edge, but He always pulls us back if our heart stays true to the light, which was where the blood cleanses from all sins. Right. right. And, and the focus is on Christ. If I put the focus on me and, and how I'm doing with the word, I'm going to fall short all the time. I, I really will because I, I'm going to get, let's just, let's throw out a, a percentage. Let's throw out a wildly imaginative percentage and let's say Marty Kessler gets 95% of the Bible right. That's pretty wild. Well, what about that other 5%? See, I can go, oh, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to hell because I didn't get to 5% right. And, and there's no room for grace. But it's, it's like Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you tithe mint and anise and cumin. Maybe dill was in there. Throw dill in. Let's just throw dill in there. What's that? Dill. It's, it's a big, big dill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just they tithe mint and anise and dill and cumin. And what do they do with what's the rest of it? And you ignore the, the weightier matters of the law. There are some things that weigh more than others. What are the things he mentioned in Matthew 23? Faithfulness. Justice. Mercy. Right? He didn't mention righteousness, but, but that's what, there are things that are more weighty than the tithing but then he comes back and he says what about the tithing you you need to do all that also okay so we got all this stuff to do and we're looking at Saul who is Saul he's the king did he become king because he went to king school graduated with honors no he's king because God made him king and God has sent them him on this mission to wipe out Agag and all of the Amalekites, and there's a history behind it because, and Saul, if he didn't know this, he should have known this. It should have been he should have been educated in this. This is what the Amalekites did centuries before, and now you need to come up. You're the man that God's put in charge to wipe them out to keep His promise of wiping their name from the face of the earth. And Saul says, "Well, I'd rather listen to the people." He told Kenites to leave, or he would kill them. Because of what the Amalekites did earlier to the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. Right. right. And the Kenites. Yeah. The, the, the Kenites. Remember Jethro? Not Bodine. Not Clampett. Jethro, who was the father-in-law of Moses. He was a Kenite. And he and his people blessed Israel as they were coming out of the promised land. So there's the Kenites blessing the Israelites. And there's the Amalekites who are fighting against them. And it goes right back to Genesis 12. And God speaks to Abraham. And he says, let me tell you, Abraham, everybody who blesses you, I'm going to bless them. Everybody who curses you, I'm going to curse them. And I believe it's the same exact way today with God's people. Why would he be any different today? We are the ones who said, I put my faith in your son. As this world goes, he was an outcast. He was crucified. 
by the people of this world. The worst death you could possibly give somebody, they gave to your son, and I'm putting my faith in him because you brought him out of the grave three days later. I don't want to die and molder in the grave. I don't want to be lost. I want to be with you. We say these things to God, if not uh, verbally. We say them in our mind. This is our communication with him. We trust in you. And here we are in a Bible class. Why are we studying the Bible? We believe it's the word of God. And we are struggling with it to come up with our conclusions. And we're challenging ourselves with what we already think and believe because we're reading this and we're trying to make application to right now. And it's like, well, what do we do about this situation? What do we do about that situation? Am I okay? Listen, if you're in Christ, you're okay. okay. (laughs) And it's not because you're good. What did Jesus say about that? He said, call no man good. Only one's good. That's your father in heaven. You and I are saved only by the virtue of God's goodness, of his righteousness, of his grace. and His. Put your focus on him and let him save you in your, in your mess that you are. Charles? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I... I struggle sometimes with certain physical limitations, and that's all I'm going to go into with that. And I was upset the other day, and I told my wife, I don't know if my best is enough. I don't know if anybody ever struggles with that like I do, but I don't know if my best is enough to get the job done. And Jamie looked at me and said, your best is exactly what I need. That's good stuff, girl. And that lifted me out of a dark place this week. And it makes me think about what you were saying earlier and, and what you're saying now, that the Lord just wants our best. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. If we could be perfect, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. Exactly right. Because he said, okay, here's how you do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. I'll give you this list of things to do. Here's a list of things not to do. You keep these two lists. You'll be in great shape. Won't work. We, we had a little dog. Have I told you about Coco, a little dog we used to have? He was not right in the head, literally. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, and it wasn't his fault when he was a tiny little puppy uh, one of our, our little kids had friends and their little friend came over and they were holding him and he kind of jumped out of their arms and he hit his head on a piece of concrete and he was never the same after. He walked sideways. <laughs> and he always had one eye that was kind of cocked. And, and little fella, he couldn't mow our grass. He couldn't clean our house. He couldn't do anything like that. We had to take care of him all the time. Do you know what we felt towards Coco? We love that dog, that dumb little old dog that if you look at it from the worldly standpoint, he was an obligation to us. He was a, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a liability. He, he was something we had to give our time to take care of and let, and yet you, you look at him and you just, you got to love him. Crooked little thing. I wonder if that's why he gives us dogs. Now cats are another story. I like cats if they're properly prepared. But 
I'm sorry, there was a hand in the back. We need to get back to some serious comments here. Charles is spot on, like 100%, but I would present and maybe evolve the idea a little bit further and say, God does see us as perfect because of Christ's blood. We, we continually forget that. That's the only way the Holy Spirit can dwell in us, because God cannot be around sin. Thankfully, God sees us as perfect because of Christ's blood. So, you know, take, encourage, you know, take encouragement by that. You're not less saved one day because, man, you, you didn't really, you didn't do great according to your own perception. We sin in ways that we don't even, not even cognizant of it. We don't even know. Even when we do it right, it's still, you know, filthy rags. It's all right. It's okay. If you don't believe what he's saying, come back to the class on Leviticus that Mike's teaching on Wednesday night and see what you have to do for the sin. And remember, oh, i got to say this fast. Jesus taught a parable about a wedding feast. Who got thrown out of the wedding feast? The guy that did not have a wedding garment on. Master of the feast came through. Came, hey, you don't have a wedding garment. Throw this guy out. When Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he said, as many as you have been baptized into Christ have done what? You have clothed yourselves with Christ. When Paul talked about seeing the blood of his son, God sees the blood, he sees his son. We are clothed with Christ. We have put on Christ in baptism. We've been baptized into Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. It's not new because I did something to make me new. It's new because God did something to make me new. When, when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he said, you, you've raised with your faith in Christ Jesus from the waters of baptism. It's all about our faith in God. It's not about our, our ability to, to do perfectly, but we still, in pursuing God, we, we need to do the most right we can. Uh, our time is up. Uh, write down what you want to say and bring it back next week and we'll cover three more chapters. Uh, <laughs> Lord love you. Bless you all. Thank you.